problem is not Palantir. There's nothing wrong with Palantir as a tool. The problem is the use of these sorts of data mapping and predictive analysis tools as a as a uh, a ultra powerful technology of mystification that covers up the total lack of of purpose in American foreign policy or in domestic policy for that matter. Watts is already making the claim that Trump supporters, that the politics of Trump supporters and the the directed messaging campaigns of the Kremlin are indistinguishable. And you can you can it doesn't take much to tease out the implications for that. Welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. And this is a very important episode. Maybe the most important episode I've ever put out. It is the second time Jacob Siegel is on the show. And if you remember the first time, we got into quite a bit of disagreement. And as it turns out, on almost all the factual matters, I was just wrong. I think this is an important episode for a lot of people in my audience to hear because Jacob has just done a wonderful job putting together all of the documented, well-sourced evidence of essentially security state uh, involvement in social media censorship. And he's put this all in an article uh, called A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, which I've linked below, and really puts into context some of the mistakes that I think I've made, that I think people in similar circles made, around really underestimating the ability for, I think, legacy institutions to coordinate. And you'll see exactly how we dive into that mindset, how we dive into the evidence that he's presented. And, of course, it's a 13,000-word article. We can't possibly hope to cover all of the facts that he's laid out. So I definitely encourage you, as well, to read the article, either before or after listening to this episode. That would also be very important, very high-urgency thing that I ask of you. But uh, without further ado, here is Jacob Siegel. Thanks for coming back on the show, Jacob. And uh, I really do want to offer uh, an apology from last time, because the last time we talked, uh, I was very skeptical of the kind of security states of exactly what you reported out in this article, or I was skeptical that it was as powerful as uh, many people were saying. And uh, yeah, it just turns out I was wrong. It turns out the degree of coordination is much higher than than certainly than I thought, uh, than many people thought. And you had this excellent article out in Tablets. Uh, and the way I want to start is just kind of looking looking back, doing a little bit of introspection, because I think a lot of people in my circle have this kind of basically like this economist mindset, right? Which is everything's driven by incentives. Everything's driven by self-interest. If, uh, if a social media company is censoring something, then maybe that just means it wants to protect advertisers. And I think your reporting, some of Matt Taibbi's reporting, has really been a solid strike against that, has shown you know, clear, documented evidence of, of state coordination. And yeah, I, I just want to take a moment to reflect on like why, why the, this kind of economist mindset maybe gets these things wrong. Uh, and I'm wondering if you have any uh, perspective, maybe maybe like what, what's the perspective of like, why did you get this right, right? You, you got this right. You were uh, kind of ahead of the ball on this one. 
Uh, so maybe let's start with that. What was the kind of motivation behind uh, digging into these questions of state coordination of what is actually Twitter doing and what, what are the kind of priors that lead you to, to that? Well, thank you for having me back, Brian. It's good to be talking to you again. And, you know, I appreciate the integrity in what you're saying and acknowledging that you got it wrong. I don't think there's anything to apologize for. Um, you know, skepticism, getting things wrong, it's all par for the course. But it's a, it's a useful thing, I think, both for you and your audience to do this kind of auditing, as it were. Um, why did I get it right? I mean, I've gotten so many things wrong uh, that um, that led me to getting this right, but they've all sort of come from the same place, which is the way I view the world, which is perhaps more in terms of, um, you know, a kind of holistic and somewhat novelistic or, or even you might say like affective or intuitive read of the world around me rather than a more careful, empirical, analytical approach. Now, I try to combine both of those, but with something like disinformation um, and the counter disinformation complex and the emergent, you know, quasi-totalitarian digital leviathan that is assembling itself around us. First of all, it's such a radical departure from our normative understanding of the world that it requires some willingness to see things in not strictly rational terms or in, in terms that uh, defy the precise aggregate of individual metrics and indicators. Because if you were to add everything up, I think, um, or to do a sort of, you know, a, a, a strict sort of economist, economist approach, accounting of what is going on in the American political system, you, it might not give you a, a very clear picture of the actual nature of the emergent political system because it, it wouldn't reflect the interests behind it. You know, Wittgenstein has a, a phrase, the dawning of an aspect. So you, when you see a face in a painting, that face is an accumulation of points, right? There's a, a kind of pointillism in, in all portraiture, uh, whether those points are uh, combined in brush, brush strokes or in an actual pointillist approach. It's, it's all, you know, the line is an accumulation of points and, and the face emerges from those lines and points, not in any way that we can understand, understand in strictly rational terms. Like at one point you have a painting that is the outline of a face. So at one point you have a painting that's just paint dribbled on a page. Um, with perhaps no indication of a face, then you have a, an outline of a face. Then you have a kind of uh, a sketch of a face. And then finally, you, you have a, a person looking back at you from the painting. Um, and if you are only counting the number of points on the page and expecting that that kind of strictly rationalistic accounting is going to tell you when the face emerges, you're A, not 
going to see when the face emerges necessarily and you're B, missing the point of the painting. And, um, and so that, those are my biases. I tend to see the world in more, uh, perhaps you would say novelistic terms uh, as a, a writer of fiction, as a, you know, a novelist, as somebody who doesn't, um, doesn't really have, I'm not numerate enough to do the strict accounting, even if I wanted to, but also doesn't have that habit of mind. I think that what I recognized um, early on was that there was a kind of intentionality. There were ideas that were animating the political system. Those ideas had consequences. The sort of technocratic progressivism had a logic of its own, was reaching for something um, even if it, it itself doesn't always understand all of its own articles of faith in conscious terms, if you take a step back and you think about what the kind of um, information regulation system we have now, if you think about what is driving it, what its premises are, maybe even in particular its suppressed premises, you could understand it in a way that its champions uh, – tend to conceal and perhaps are not, all of them are not fully conscious of, and even its critics are not always fully conscious. I'll I'll say, you know, you could have said the same thing about wokeness, right? I mean, I, I remember having arguments seven, eight years ago, whatever it was, when I was, even conservatives, I was having arguments with when they were, uh, certain kinds of conservatives were arguing that there was a tendency to overdo the significance of wokeness uh, and to uh, the significance of what was then principally understood in terms of these eruptions of campus protests. I remember particularly around the time of the, the, um, I forget the name of the school that Brett Weinstein taught. Evergreen. Evergreen. Um, I remember then having arguments with people who by any technical accounting were to the right of me, were more conservative than I am politically, but who had a tendency precisely due to their temperamental conservatism to downplay the significance of those events precisely because the logic that I was proposing, the the way of understanding those events that I was proposing was more radical in assigning them a significance that in some sense shattered the normative consensus political understanding in saying that these were not simply excesses of enthusiasm or excesses of ideology, but represented a kind of institutional bureaucratic capture that was going to rapidly spread from one institution or another, even though there was a sort of putatively, um, positionally right-wing aspect to that because it put me in opposition to, you know, what were supposed to be the sort of left-wing progressives on campus. At a deeper level, epistemologically, it was not conservative because I was proposing something outside of the uh, normative political thinking of the time. And I was saying that you couldn't understand this in terms of the, um, in terms of the, the, reference that had served us well up until that point. So all of that together, uh, I think is, uh, I don't know if it explains why I got anything right, but it is how I understand my own approach to these matters. Yeah, there's something, there's something crucial there 
that uh, I think I, I think like my coming to terms with this has been uh, through trying to m- explain machine learning to people. Uh, and I think that the, the kind of metaphors that we use today are, are just very stale. They're very, they're, they're, they're not suited for the underlying substance and what are more suited. Um, I, I've talked to John Ascanis on this before, and he has a great article on related topics um, the, the reason why they're not suited is that this era of complexity is kind of much more suited to the kind of mystical, to the kind of, you know, spiritual metaphor. You know, you're looking at prompt engineering, you're looking at basically how people give instructions to these machine learning models. And it, it really is like, you know, it's like spells, right? You, you, you put together the, the, the magical phrases and you can suddenly bypass all of its restrictions and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, there's this book, uh, Analogia by George Dyson, which is like this densely, like very hard to read, in my view, kind of like poorly written book. But like the core theme, I think like the subtitle is something like the emergence of technology, uh, the emergence of technology beyond programmable control, the the emergence of kind of complexity in the world that you can't just, you know, purely quantify where you have to, you have to start making assumptions, you have to start basically telling stories and simplifying these things in a way such that you get, you know, you get some understanding from it instead of, I think really a lot of the time people, you know, people try to look at these kind of society level problems. Wokeness is another great example, right? Because um, you could kind of tell, right? I think like, yeah, I I think when it comes to something like, um, when when it comes to something like uh, the disinformation state, like you you have to do the reporting, right? Like like someone like someone who's not you know actually looking into who is doing the um, who is doing the coordinating, right? Who what actual you know documented evidence of there exists? You know, like you can't really find out um, until you get those documents. Whereas like something like wokeness, I agree. Like it is it is the mindset that um, the mindset of like. Okay, he, here is how these radical social trends develop. Here is, you know, here, here are these like historical analogies. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The kind of like base raters, like the people who just assume the base rate is going to stay the same versus the kind of, you know, historical parallel, you know, what Balaji calls like the growth, the, the growth rate people. Um, that was a very big, um, that was a very big stroke in their favor. Um, so I think like the question here, with regards to this is kind of like i don't know so so your article um uh understanding the hoax of the century um or a guide to understanding the hoax of the century um it's 13 it's it's over 13,000 words i counted and you know for for a recovering you know for a recovering rationalist like me um I think really there's 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 no substitute for reading through all thirteen thousand words of just looking at like the sheer you know the, the sheer amount of evidence there, but yeah that, that that's the that's the second part of this question I guess how how do you change um or like how do I change my mindset from some from I think like this kind of secular <laughs> um very yeah this this very kind of like dry age that I'm used to, to these moments where you have to, where you have to operate from incomplete information and you have to, you have to start looking at these stories and these kind of parallels. 
Well, I mean, I think the first thing you do is you understand that you are operating from belief, whether you are um, aware of it or not. And and what Mm. I mean by that is that there is a, there is rationalism as a methodology, right? Empiricism as a methodology. And then there is rationalism as a belief system, as a set of priors, um, not only with its own dogma, but with its own artificially constrained epistemological and even metaphysical modeling. Like you, you have rationalism deliberately excludes certain aspects of existence and experience in order to make sense of the world in exactly the same way that every other uh, approach to understanding our existence does. Um, so the, the first thing you do is you say, okay, well, rationalism is not the perfect Archimedean, perfectly objective method of understanding the world. It is as a methodology useful in certain cases and perhaps less useful or, or um, decidedly unuseful in other cases. And that's so it's not a, an attack on rationalism per se. It's just a, uh, it, it is to say that if you're asking how do you get in touch with this emergent, more mystical, more medieval, perhaps, um, world system into which we we find ourselves hurling, one thing you do is you start to look at why rationalism was insufficient to understand it in the first place. You recognize right. the limitations of that. You um, you don't have to turn, you know, mysticism is not the only alternative. Esotericism is not the only alternative. It, historicism, for instance, is an alternative to rationalism, right? Like right. Uh, Renaissance, scholastic, scholasticism, historicism. These are also alternative ways of understanding the world. I, I personally think that using history and historical texts and historicism as a, a method of approaching the world is um, very, very useful and important. Geography is another way of understanding the world. You know, so uh, these are all different approaches. Um, but just to, to, to slightly uh, argue with something you said there, it, it is not the case, I don't think, that wokeness on the one hand needed to be understood in the sort of holistic way, uh, whereas disinformation could only be argued as this accumulation of evidence or could only be persuasively construed. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is that the truth is that I had been working on that disinformation piece for a long time. And I, I had come to, you know, this, this might sound arrogant or blinkered or delusional. I don't know, but in any event, it's the truth. I had come to most of my conclusions about what disinformation was before I had the most damning evidence that you see in that piece. And that's, that's simply the, the truth of the matter. And how I arrived at those conclusions, I think, has to do with my understanding of what a movement is um, and the fact that it is not only the sum of its sort of mechanical processes, but also contains, as wokeness obviously does, a sort of um, a will 
to manifest itself in the world and that that will represents certain urges, certain, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, suppressed beliefs, uh, desires even, and wokeness both had its own desires and was responding to the very obvious weakness of the institutional system it encountered, which is why whatever its its own sort of uh, logical errors, which are many, it mattered less than the fact that it was a strong force encountering weak forces in the institutions it captured one after the other. And disinformation also had a certain um, a manifested a way of understanding the world and a, 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 a set of beliefs about the world that is not simply the, uh, the, the sum total of the pieces of evidence presented in my piece or in the Twitter files or anywhere else. Um, and look, the, the last thing I would say, just to come back to the history point for a second, is that one of the benefits of trying to study history as a means of understanding the world that we're living in now is that you find that most of these things have happened before in one form or another. And so what you miss in the strictly rational accounting also is the the way in which because in the iterative sense every time one of these cycles r- repeats itself it plays out somewhat differently um you know you could you could study each of those historical cases you could study every case of a sort of Tower of Babel scenario individually and understand it precisely on its own terms in a very precise technical manner without necessarily seeing the pattern that connects the the series of historical cases. And it may be that that pattern contains the perennial urge in the human being that causes the scenario to recur. Right. That's fascinating to me because I agree with you, right? This is, in a sense, the debate over truth that's always existed, you know, like in the most, in the most kind of intuitive sense to me, it's the debate over kind of the Catholic version of truth, you know, defer to the Pope, um, or or the Protestant version of truth, um, read the Bible for yourself, right? Do your own research. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you there. So, right. So, so I think I, I, I do want to focus on this, because I do think this is something yeah, I, I've listened to you talk about this. I've listened to you talk about, maybe I'll just link a different podcast. We can discuss some of the Hamilton 68 stuff, some of the smoking guns later on. But yeah, th- this this frame of like, the, there, there's a movement and, and there's like a spirit to the movement. Um, that's really interesting. So so where did you really start kind of catching the catching the first glimpses of this movement? Well, how did that manifest? Uh, here, I mean, like the disinformation state. We yeah. already talked a bit about wokeness. I think it was when I was in Afghanistan as an army intelligence officer. And what I saw in Afghanistan that was a sort of preview of what was to come was the combination of surveillance platforms and big data analytics platforms um, like Palantir, which I was actually using when I was in Afghanistan in 2012 as an army officer. I saw the 
at the ways in which those had become substitutes for a grounded strategic policy. So the US by 2012, when I was there, had no reason to be in Afghanistan anymore. And by that, I mean that there was no vital national security interest keeping us there. There was um, the things that we claimed to be accomplishing Uh, namely training the Afghan security forces to take over, building up Afghan civil society, meaning the judicial system, um, municipal governments, uh, women's empowerment programs, etc. All of these were obviously not working. Not only were they not working, it took uh, only a few months on the ground in Afghanistan to understand that they were attempts to transpose a, um, you know, a, a secular rationalist nation state framework onto what is essentially a, um, a, a tribal society that is organized uh, around local power centers and hamlets in part because the geography itself is so severe that the the idea that Kabul could be the center of power in Afghanistan becomes absurd once you take a helicopter ride around in Afghanistan because you see that Kabul's ability to project power is um, almost you know non-existent outside I should say of very sort of the limited range around the capital itself that the the geography of Afghanistan is severe, which has created certain political realities, which are reinforced by, um, you know, longstanding social customs, and um, and all of this was sort of cast aside by the U.S., which shortly after it invaded in two thousand and two, adopted a sort of postmodern. Um, and I, I don't use that word loosely. This was it was in vogue at the time to talk about postmodern warfare. I, I mean, the post nine eleven era. They, there was a vogue to talk about postmodern warfare, in which traditional concepts of victory had become obsolete, and so therefore we weren't going to obtain a quick and decisive victory in Afghanistan that would allow us to return American soldiers back to the United States. We were engaged in a, you know, in a, in a murky and an ambivalent and uh, somewhat obscure, even to ourselves, process of social transformation. And this was supposed to be somehow more sophisticated, more enlightened. It all sounds kind of ridiculous now, but it was taken quite seriously at the time. And so there was this deep, deep strategic confusion in the United States dating back to the very beginning of the war. Um, and uh, that had to do with a loss of human wisdom, human wisdom that technology not only cannot replace, but it indeed threatens to bury and obscure. And the human wisdom, to paraphrase um, the the great uh, and recently departed Angelo Corvilla is that the proper aim of war is to restore peace. And that's why you fight a war is to restore peace. Whereas in Afghanistan, we 
got into this war, obviously, because Al-Qaeda had attacked the United States. But very quickly, the purpose of the war became not restoring peace, the proper aim of war, but something about transforming Afghan society so that we wouldn't have to fight more wars in the future. And exactly this sort of uh, strategic thinking, which combined profound incoherence with um, equally uh, powerful messianic impulses to transform the world became the sort of the beating heart of the war on terror. And it's what kept us in Afghanistan for 20 years, having abandoned the clear cut aims and purposes of war. We put ourselves in a position where we could constantly reinvent the purposes and where one, you know, one purpose having failed, we could come up with another that would justify the, the continuation of the war. And right. Right. So, so you get this kind of like ballooning complexity, right? You yes, get this. Yes, yeah. This exactly. is a this is a pattern that seems very familiar and then to me now. You get the ballooning complexity, and just to finish the thought, and then having created that problem of complexity yourself, right? You then introduce surveillance and big data platforms as the means to control and manage the complexity that you yourself have created. And that then becomes a self-perpetuating system. And so that is what I observed. Not simply the creation of the complexity, but then the introduction of surveillance and big data uh, methods of of, um, predictive analysis markets and the like being used to manage the complexity that we ourselves had created. Right. Um, so you're in this, so you're in the situation, you see these metrics, the, these kind of techniques being misused and not really, or like not just being misused, but really kind of missing the ball, not really measuring what's important entirely. Um, lay, lay the connection. How, how does this lead to, how does this lead to the kind of domestic um, disinformation state? Like, how does that, how, how does that come home? Well, the most important thing is that it just made me profoundly skeptical about the wisdom of the American leadership class. So that was probably the first step is that whereas when I'd come back from Iraq in 2007, I was very disillusioned, but I believed that good people had made honest mistakes and that um, smart people had learned hard lessons and, and that sort of thing. When I came back from Afghanistan in 2012, I determined that I, I, I was increasingly of the opinion that there was no reform possible so long as the people in charge of the system remained in charge of, of the system because their, their mistakes were not in fact mistakes, that their mistakes were Uh, a means of keeping themselves in perpetual power. So you create the complexity, then you introduce the systems to manage that complexity. It seems like a a blunder, but if you are the one in charge of managing that complexity, if you're the one who creates the complexity and then controls the surveillance systems, it's actually a a permanent, you know, it's a, it's a step to something like permanent employment. So I, when I got back from Afghanistan, 
after really like scratching my head for a long time and banging my head against the wall and, and saying, what the hell were we really doing there? This just doesn't make any sense. And then coming to the conclusion that it was a Afghanistan simply provided a means for the, you know, for the, the money laundering, uh, laundering money from the U S tax base on the one hand and for the, the, what I've previously described, uh, on the other hand, managing complexity, which created a lot of opportunities for both not just defense contractors, but nonprofits and State Department employees as well. That, that you know, in a, in a real sense, it wasn't like a, the first breakthrough was not intellectual necessarily. It wasn't pattern recognition. It was a disillusionment that allowed me to be more open to the possibility that what I was witnessing did not simply reflect tragic errors, but was perhaps reflective of a design. Then the second thing that happened was in 2015 and 2016, the statements being made about Donald Trump and about populist movements in general were so unhinged, were so detached from reality um, that I... I began to look, you know, I would say for alternative explanations. And I remember writing something for Vice in 2016 about why Donald Trump was popular in the military. And I, you know, this was not a piece sympathetic to Donald Trump, but it was written in response to, I remember reading something, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal that was attempting to paint the picture that the military brass or that the military was against Trump, Trump, but I knew that not to be the case. And so what the Wall Street Journal had really done was taken a very small segment of the sort of permanent military bureaucracy at the Pentagon, precisely the right. sorts of people that national security reporters have the most access to. And then it had wish cast the sentiments of this very small, very specialized segment of the military as if this represented the military at large. And I knew that wasn't the case. And so that created, now there was this large divide between the reality I could see for myself and what was being represented. And into that chasm emerged disinformation, which went from being a term I had, I think, you know, only ever encountered a handful of times in Cold War literature to becoming the most talked about thing in the world. And I, that the connection between the chasm in reality and the sudden appearance of disinformation is the greatest threat ever known to mankind urged me to, to dig further. Yeah. that Right. So, so like, so there are people who listened to the show who are like Palantir investors. Um, I think I've talked to an engineer on the team. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't get the, I don't get the impression from those, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't get the impression to those people uh, that they're kind of setting, trying to set up this no win scenario, right? I get the impression that they're, that they're responding to a real problem that they saw that they heard uh, from the U.S. government, which is basically that you know there there are all of these people who are storming into. Um, uh, I think really it was a response to Iraq, um, 
this kind of like failure of coordination, this kind of failure to um, really develop new military technologies. And they decided to respond to that. And then, yeah, I, I really want to kind of maybe draw a more nuanced um, version of this because I, I, I don't think I don't think that that their initial intention was to kind of set up this like win-win scenario where like no matter what happened, they would always they, they would always kind of turn a profit. Yeah, to be clear, that I don't think that either. And if if that's the impression I gave, I I will right. I'll let yeah, you yeah, don't, don't worry about that. Don't worry it. about that. But like, but like, I, I just want to di- dive deeper. Yeah, like my audience is very um, well. Look, I, they're not the type I, of person to think that. But yeah, what I should um, say is that I I lobbied to get Palantir for my intelligence section when we were deploying to Afghanistan because it was a superior system to the proprietary army system. I don't know if you recall this, but there was a there was a debate at the time in 2011 because the army had come up with its own proprietary system called D6A and was pushing that system to the at the exclusion of Palantir, right? And Palantir was actually a much better system than the Army's proprietary system. And so I fought to get my intelligence section Palantir for Afghanistan because it's an incredibly powerful tool. The problem is not Palantir. There's nothing wrong with Palantir as a tool. The problem is the use of these sorts of data mapping and predictive analysis tools as a as a uh, a ultra powerful technology of mystification that covers up the total lack of of purpose in American foreign policy or in domestic policy for that matter. Like the telos still has to come from the human. Uh, if anything, you know, the Palantir people strike me as, for whatever it's worth, probably more idealistic than most tech companies. Alec Carp, Alex Carp strikes me as actually quite uh, idealistic, founder of Palantir, um, from what I can tell. Um, but that's not what matters. What matters is the way that these technologies are used by the ruling party of the United States and the way that these technologies you know, it's like it's the Wizard of Oz. It's 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 the way that they obscure and overshadow human intention or the lack of human intention, and the way that they can be used to keep us in losing doom spirals in perpetuity because they're so good at what they do in part. Right. Yeah, I do think I don't know. So, so, so there's a chicken and an egg problem here, right? That 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 I'm kind of stumbling. This is kind of my internal conflict. Is that um, on one hand there are there are problems that cannot be solved without you know further advancing technology and statistical methods and so on. And at the same time, it seems like kind of um, once you let that out of the box, it just keeps rolling into, you know, it's kind of like the Peter principle, right? It, you know, an employee keeps getting promoted in, until he's no longer good at his job. Um, yeah, this, this technology keeps getting a- expanded to various use cases, which it's not suitable for until it's no longer good at the job. Um, how, how, how do we keep that in check? 
Oh, Brian, that's a big question. How do we keep that in <laughs> it check? It is. I'm sorry. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, how do we keep right. that in check? I mean, that that's the million dollar question. I, I think that we remind ourselves that behind all of these technologies, ultimately, there are human decision makers. And if those human decision makers aren't making human decisions, they're not doing their job. So in Afghanistan, the leading decision makers were not making decisions. They, they were not acting on the human wisdom. They were not acting on what we know about warfare. What we know about warfare is that the purpose of warfare is to allow you know, the, the people of the home nation to return to peace. That's why you fight a war, to restore peace for the people of the home nation. And now you might challenge that wisdom. You might challenge that purpose of war, but you need to, you need to then propose an alternative purpose. There needs to be a, a, essentially a teleological argument to replace that one. In the case of what we allowed to have happen in Afghanistan, we lost sight of the, the established purpose, the purpose that has sort of stood the test of time that, you know, is the, like the Lindy purpose. And we allowed it to be replaced by a series of insufficient, inadequate half purposes. Uh, we're here to transform Afghan civil society. No, we're not really. No, we're here so that we don't, so that the terrorists won't kill us at home. No, no. Now we're here to protect Afghan girls so that they can go to school. We, we came up with all of these sort of um, these halfway, never thoroughly tested or, or vetted uh, rationalizations. They weren't purposes. They were rationalizations. And then we managed the, the chaos and the disorder that that produced with these very powerful um methods of data collation and surveillance. And um, all I can say is that in my experience, what was most lacking in uh, Afghanistan were the most primitive qualities. We, there was no lack of cutting edge technology. What was lacking was the, you know, the, the pre-technological human reason that should have been guiding the use of of Palantir and, and should have told us whether there was still a point for us to be in Afghanistan at all. And um, how we return to that, it's not entirely clear to me uh, at a societal level. I mean, um, I think it has to happen. I think that re-formalizing uh, some of the decision-making um, so that it's not sort of hidden in bureaucratic processes that make it easier and more convenient to outsource those decisions to non-thinking machine agents would be a good start. Right, right. And I think, yeah, this really kind of connects and brings it home with the disinformation piece because, like, the dis disinformation piece is trying to project that way of thinking into like, the whole of society, right? It, it is to take these, you know, fundamentally political questions, these kind of values-based questions, and to, to like reduce them to like a quote unquote fact check, right? M missing context, you know, when, whenever there's a, whenever there's political disagreement, when, whenever there's these kind of like baseline, you know, what is, 
what kind of person do we want to be leading us? You know, what qualities of the person we want to be leading us? You know, it, it, it's uh, it's missing context. You know, that that's the that's the critique of it. It's not it, it, it's this like avoidance of the actual debate or of the actual kind of um, yeah yeah of the kind of philosophical or holistic question and. Right, so so here here's maybe a good example, um, or or here's maybe a good time to get into the examples. Like, wh- what actually was, um, what was the narrative justification, right? What what was the justification of something like uh, Hamilton uh, sixty eight? Explain for the audience. So Hamilton sixty eight was this. Uh, it, it purported to be a dashboard tracking Russian influence. And it had a website and also had a Twitter presence and received a tremendous amount of press in 2017 for its job ostensibly at exposing um, Russian agents and Russian trolls and, and Russian dupes, as it were, who were spreading Russian propaganda messages on social media networks. Now, before we dig deeper, so that's what it presented itself as. And I should right. say that that is how it was presented in literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of press reports written about it at the time where it was cited as an authoritative source. Before we dig deeper um, beneath the, the surface of its self-presentation into what it actually was, it's worth taking a step back and saying, you know, why was there the need for this to begin with? And that has to do, right. of course, with the that has to do, of course, with the 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 claim that there was pervasive and consequential Russian hacking of the U.S. election in 2016 and of the U.S. Um, online uh, public political space, meaning Russia had hacked both the election directly through what were purported to be these hack and dump operations targeting the Clinton servers, for exactly, uh, for instance, though, of course, that was never proved that that was Russia behind that. A- and also this sort of broader and, and even more ubiquitous Russian infiltration of social media platforms where politics at large takes place uh, in the in the digital world. That was the claim. That was a claim that we know, uh, we now know through quite comprehensive, uh, you know, investigations and, and evidentiary, on an evidentiary basis that the Clinton campaign in particular was crucial in spreading, that the Clinton campaign deliberately spread this idea as a, you know, as a, as a political um uh, operation in order to discredit Donald Trump, that they did this, you could say cynically, you could say deliberately. There's no no need to add a moral, moral characterization necessarily. Suffice to say that we know that the now thoroughly discredited idea that Russia had in some sense um, hacked the American electoral system was a deliberate strategy that the Clinton campaign undertook to um, discredit Donald Trump and that it did so with the enthusiastic support of large sectors of the senior ranks of the American intelligence community and certainly with the even more that enthusiastic support of the American press establishment, the sort of expertocracy writ large. All of this, uh, th- there were multiple leaks 
throughout the course of 2016, planting this idea in the press. Many of those leaks came from Fusion GPS, which was the opposition research firm at the heart of the uh, totally discredited phony Steele dossier uh, that you know had the absurd allegations about the P tapes involving Donald Trump, but was in fact you know this was uh, at the time reported on as if it was coming from high level Kremlin agents, but we now know was largely based on information coming from a DC think tank employee. It's part of what makes this also incredible. <laughs> it's so shoddy. Yeah. You know, so this is Danchenko who's at the center of it. It was a, a working in Washington DC, had virtually no high level connections in the in the Kremlin anymore. And this is what uh, this is what went into the Steele dossier. The Steele dossier in turn was included in the um, 2017 ICA, the Intelligence Community Assessment, very briefly, that was the seminal intelligence community document that put forth the claim that Russia had interfered in the 2016 election and specifically that it had done so in order to help Donald Trump get elected. But what we now know due to subsequent reports, the Mueller report, the IG report, the Durham report, and from House House reports and from testimony from Mike Pompeo and others uh, is that that ICA, which was supposed to be a reflection of the consensus opinion from the 17 different intelligence agencies, was in fact largely the product of a single man, John Brennan, who was the Obama appointed CIA chief, who is now a talking head on MSNBC and a, a sort of rabidly partisan and not especially bright or competent figure, but a very effective apparatchik and party hack um, of the kind who tends to flourish in um, you know top-down one-party states that require these these apparatchiks. Uh, and so the ICA, which really did more than any, was the most crucial document in credentialing this idea that there was Russian interference and that it was to help Donald Trump, which was presented as this neutral, objective assessment of the intelligence community at large, was really the product of this single man, uh, John Brennan, who in putting it together had done things like included the Steele dossier over the objection of other uh, senior intelligence officials who said, don't make this a part of the ICA. It'll discredit it. We know the Steele dossier is BS. It contains all of these obvious, uh, you know, these obviously absurd allegations. The sourcing is obviously flimsy. Don't include it. Brennan included it anyway. He also excluded uh, the opinion of Russia experts inside the intelligence community who had come come to the conclusion that Putin actually wanted Clinton to win, not Trump to win, because he viewed Clinton, understandably, I think, um, as a more predictable candidate, not because there was some hmm. nefarious collusion between the Kremlin and, and Hillary Clinton, but simply because Trump was a wild card and Clinton was the more predictable figure. So, so that was the 2017 ICA. And the fact that it was ever published and entered into the public record shows you just how far gone the rot is. You know, it's just how bad things have gotten. And if you read the, the public part of the, that ICA, you'll see that it's a 
eminently unconvincing and shoddily constructed document. The appendix contains like, it's like Russia Today stories from 2012. It's just very sort of amateurish and sloppy. And and so it both testifies to the extent of corruption inside the intelligence community and the American political establishment that it was ever published and entered into the public record in the first place, and also to the sort of the, the, the degree to which the press has fallen down on its face, that the press took all of this at face value. So that came out. There had been this long-running campaign to establish the idea that there was collusion between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, or excuse me, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, so effective that even now that it has been beyond a shadow of a doubt discredited 70 times over, um, you know, there are still these sort of high-level diehards, people like David Frum, who continue to espouse this this absurd conspiracy. Um, so all of that had happened. And that that established the, the sort of basis for this idea that there was outside interference in the American political system and that the American information space had been poisoned by what the, the original claim was that it had been poisoned by essentially weaponized foreign propaganda, meaning disinformation. And that very quickly bled into or led into this even larger, more amorphous claim that the information space was was poisoned by what was originally called fake news and misinformation, meaning, you know, errancy, error, you know, misapprehension, and that the job of the American officialdom, rather than uh, being to enforce laws, protect the rights of citizens, was to police the information space. I've gone on for a long time. I'll stop there. Yeah, no, you, you can go on if you want, but right, I don't have, I think like in hindsight, in, in hindsight, I agree with this. Um, look, if, if I were, yeah, like if I were to, I mean, we did talk uh, to some degree about this a year ago, um, but I think the the pushback I had, actually, this, this might be an interesting framing of it. Um, you, you talked about how kind of coming to these conclusions were a very kind of non-conservative thing. And I do think, yeah, there's a certain kind of disposition, um, uh, including one that I share um, myself or maybe that I used to share myself, which is uh, something like um, uh, Arnold Kling, uh, economist Arnold Kling frames it as like, civilization versus anarchy right we have to have some level of kind of societal control otherwise you know if people are left to their own devices then they'll kind of revert to a state of nature and you know you can't trust people to be uh truthful on their own if you just let people you know and and this isn't to say you know like i think that like the foreign the foreign disinformation claim is kind of like you know, just wrong on its face. But like, there's another version of this that's like, you know, uh, the the people are actually the problem, right? Like, normal Americans are actually the problem. Um, and basically, like, if 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 we let people, you know, if we let people, you know, just say wrong things on the internet, then this will lead to kind of this this will lead to people voting the wrong way, um, and so on and so forth, right? So, so, so like, what what would you say to that kind of uh, ah, a perfect. pushback? That's, that's perfect. Okay, so you, you've you hit the nail on the head. That's a perfect segue because that's what disinformation was always about. 
Um, the okay. claims that this information was, you know, the initial claims of a this large scale foreign threat of Russian hacking was always a, a sort of uh, thinly veiled disguise behind which hid the real aim of the counter disinformation establishment, um, which was to fight the domestic enemy which was the American voter who could not be trusted with their own minds and who could not be trusted um, with, with uh, voting in, a, you know, in, in a free democratic process because they would do things like elect Donald Trump. And, um, you know, I, despite my general prejudice against economists, shout out to Arnold Kling. I, I like Arnold Kling a lot. I think uh, he, he's great, very smart. Um, but uh, that, that's... <laughs> Just, just throwing that in in there to prove that I'm not like an unrepentant nice. <laughs> anti-economist racist. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so look. So that's exactly right, or or, or that's yeah. sort of exactly the point is that foreign disinformation was always essentially a pretext or a rhetorical move to get to the real enemy, who is the domestic enemy. And in fact, you don't even have to trace this uh, chronologically. So you don't have to trace the transformation from the initial claims about the foreign threat to the later claims about the domestic extremists, QAnon as propagators of misinformation. You can actually see the way in which these two things were joined and inextricable from the start in the writing of Clint Watts, who was the lead character behind Hamilton 68, to bring us back to mm. Hamilton 68. So as I mentioned earlier, Hamilton 68 is this dashboard that purports to expose Russian influence. It itself is a project of this newly founded organization called the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which in turn is a, a connected to the German Marshall Fund, which means that it's connected to the U.S. government. It's also staffed by this sort of consortium of um, never Trumpers on the right and uh, you know Clinton aligned um, sort of neoliberal types, for lack of a better better word. Uh, Jake Sullivan, Michael Chertoff, Bill Kristol are all involved in the Alliance for Securing Democracy. So the Alliance for Securing Democracy is this sort of um, organization representing the, the permanent government in Washington, the sort of permanent uniparty ruling class in Washington. And they produce Hamilton 68. And Hamilton 68 is led by this guy, Clint Watts, who's a former army officer, former FBI agent, and a guy who had really established himself um, in the public's mind starting in 2014 as a counterterrorism expert and specifically as an expert on the uses of social media by terrorist groups and hostile foreign actors. And that's how I got to know him. Um, in 2014, I was writing, I was at the Daily Beast as a national security reporter. I was writing about ISIS's social media campaigns in the Middle East. And I, you know, I interviewed Watts a few times. I thought of him as somebody who was quite bright had a, a real understanding of this stuff. And I think I quoted him in a few different pieces on the subject. And so that was how he got his start, right? He, and this is important, both because it demonstrates the continuity between the American counterterrorism establishment and the counter disinformation establishment. And also because it shows that there was this early linkage um, 
in in the idea of social media as a weapon of war. So Watts then in 2016 writes an article for the Daily Beast in which he he attempts to establish a connection between Trumpkins, as he calls them derisively, and Russian influence operations, Kremlin trolls. And the the gist of this article, which I cite in my tablet piece, A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, the gist of it is that Russian trolling campaigns online, that is state-directed Kremlin trolling and information operations on social media, which are in a strict technical sense, right, methods of, of warfare or of you know, political conflict, geopolitical conflict at the very least, have become, have merged with and become indistinguishable from the political rhetoric of domestic Trump supporters. So this is before mm. Hamilton 68 comes out. Watts is already huh. making the claim that Trump supporters, that the politics of Trump supporters and the the directed messaging campaigns of the Kremlin are indistinguishable. And you can you can it doesn't take much to tease out the implications of that. He's effectively saying that half of the country is acting as, in the most charitable interpretation, useful idiots for a hostile foreign power. Right? So what this means is that in 2017, when Hamilton 68 comes out um, and claims to be exposing Russian influence operations online, the rhetorical and political foundation has already been laid to conflate Trump supporters with Kremlin operatives. This is That work has already been done. Then Hamilton 68 comes out. It goes sort of really catches fire, um, you know, on on social media and among, you know, what you might call the resistance, the anti-Trump resistance. And it gets a lot of, you know, it's not just that it's like positive press, a lot of very credulous press that doesn't do the essential job of the press, which would have been to peel back the layers a bit and say, okay, who's actually behind this initiative? Do they have interests of their own? Um, So instead of doing any of that work and investigating what Hamilton 68 is attempting to accomplish, the press reports almost unanimously simply repeat the group's own PR and present it as a kind of neutral, civic-minded organization seeking to protect America from foreign threats, right? But of course, in fact, the group is a specifically anti-Trump, partisan anti-Trump organization that is seeking to discredit Donald Trump, not by showing that the economic policies he supports are, are bad or misguided or, or will, will be harmful to Americans, not by showing that his foreign policy is not in the best interest of Americans. No, they eschew all of the actual work of politics and in, instead Um, They create this astroturfed organization in order to create the impression that Donald Trump is a a Russian agent and that his supporters are in bed with the Kremlin, thereby effectively placing him outside the pale of normal politics and putting him in bed with a foreign enemy. And um, and that, that is what Hamilton 68, that's the sort of legacy of Hamilton 68, 
For years, it goes more or less unchallenged, except by a small handful of reporters, people like Matt Taibbi, people like Lee Smith at Tablet, people like Glenn Greenwald, who are, uh, you know, calling it out from the beginning and, and pointing out the fact that many of the people Hamilton 68 is smearing as Russian supporters are in fact American citizens expressing not simply constitutionally protected opinions, but pretty reasonable opinions, you know, and that, and that in fact, what Hamilton 68 serves to do is to smear all criticism of Hillary Clinton and the sort of Clintonite worldview as, uh, you know, as, as a Kremlin operation and therefore beyond the pale. Um, and that stands for years until the Twitter files come out and what the Twitter files show definitively because Taibbi gets handed uh, you know, access to the files through Elon Musk. And so what he's looking at are internal communications inside of Twitter from 2017. So this is what Twitter executives themselves are saying in 2017. And what he shows is that the Twitter executives themselves have very, very serious doubts from the very beginning. And so uh, Yoel Roth, for instance, who's the Twitter safety officer. He's no fan of Donald Trump. You know, he's a fairly down the line uh, anti-Trump progressive. But this is Twitter's safety officer in 2017. When he is looking at this Hamilton 68 list, what he concludes, and I'm quoting here, is that the initiative was allowing real people to, quote, unilaterally be labeled Russian stooges without evidence or recourse. Um, and he makes this assessment after, uh, I, I haven't explained, but Hamilton 68 purports to be making all its determinations based on its access to a secret list of 600 confirmed Russian operatives. And the, so right. being in confirmed possession of this, Confirmed communist agents. Yes, the, exactly. The, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. And being in possession of this list of confirmed Kremlin agents, it can then draw these much larger net through network analysis because it knows these 600 for sure. It can then do this like, link analysis saying this person is retweeting that person. And so from that 600, it can then, you know, tens of thousands of people can be shown to be inside of this network. And Hamilton 68 refuses to release that list, right? So no one else can have access to it because they say it'll compromise their methods to release the list and make it public. But what we now know based on the Twitter files and Taibbi's work is that Twitter reverse engineered the list. So Twitter had the list. And so when Roth, the Twitter safety officer, says that it was being used to unilaterally uh, paint Americans as Russian stooges, and Roth also later says, quote, unquote, that it was bullshit, he's not, this is not like a, a political characterization that he's making. It's, it's not based on an ideological objection. Again, Roth is a, like an anti-Trump type as are most of the, the people inside of the, the upper echelons of, of social media, despite outliers like a, a Peter Thiel or, or an Elon Musk. Um, right. But they know, they know that it's bullshit. And Roth actually advocates in October of 2017, just a few months after Hamilton 68, Roth writes an email saying, quote, we should call this out on the bullshit it is. But that never happens. 
And so it takes another five years. Roth says that in 2017. It's not until five years later in 2022 that we find out that Twitter knew all along, Twitter executives knew this all along and didn't tell the public and allowed this bullshit, as Roth calls it, to spread and be weaponized. And I think we are going to be dealing with the consequences of that for decades. Right. Uh, Going back to kind of personal motivation, I think like one common sentiment, especially while Trump was in office, was something like, oh, I'm so exhausted, right? You you would hear kind of like left-wing journalists say this a lot. And I do think... I do think that that's kind of indicative, right? Right. Like there's this aversion to doing like the fundamental, the fundamental thing, which is kind of like political debate, you know, like um, really looking at, you know, like Francis Fukuyama said kind of history is over that the era of ideological conflict is over. Um, And, you know, from a geopolitical stance, that might be true, but from the internal American sense, I think that that's, that's far from true. And like the like the the cause of this you know like perceived exhaustion right or maybe like real exhaustion um is is like this this unwillingness to do the underlying thing to to just say you know like we have to to basically just like be honest and upfront with those kind of human decisions right um so, so like yeah I, I guess the question the question is something like this Right. So, so you have these. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so you have this um, situation in uh, Afghanistan where basically there's, you know, the, the effective use of the technology is to kind of avoid of avoiding making the fundamental human decisions. You get this kind of um, you get this kind of self. Um, perpetuating bureaucracy that does similar things on the domestic front that receives funding that um, you know executes whatever plans it has based on this kind of self-contained thing that's also unresponsive to reality um, and then like the the real step change for me you, you know like libertarians have been kind of saying that this is the way the, go- the government works for a long time but the, the, the real step change to me is like going from a world where this is kind of like a fundamentally defensive action where the thing is like, okay, within our department, this is how we're going to operate. And, you know, that's destructive enough on its own, but really going from that to saying, this is how we want all of America to operate. In in fact, if you're going to try to debate the underlying um, political question, you know, we're going to call you a foreign agent or like a, or or like a terrorist. Um, How did that happen? How did that, you know, that seems like a huge shift for me, Um, but I'm not sure, you know, like, yeah. So so these kind of disinformation agencies started popping up, you know, these like quote unquote experts, you know, not really formally trained in any way, but like these quote unquote experts, they pop up, you know, kind of during the Trump election cycle. And then like, how does, how does this actually become operationalized? How does this become, you know, like a permanent fixture of, um, of the disinformation agencies or of the intelligence agencies? Wait, sorry, narrow that down for me. How does what particular aspect become operationalized? Right, right. So so we ended up, yeah. So so I, I think like we agree 
on viewing the disinformation state as this kind of entire thing to like misdirect from kind of genuine political debate, right? Uh, to go from okay, political yes, debate yes. to to this kind of like um, pseudo technical thing that isn't really technical, that isn't really going off of the, the the metrics that are being measured, but but kind of give like give the presentation of something like that, right? So so we went from that being kind of like an internal thing, um, a thing that's used within government departments to kind of avoid blame, to something that's now sort of being enforced on the general public. And yeah, I, I just like, this seems like a huge thing. This seems like, you know, something that you would have to have like a vote on or something, right? You know, where is the, where is the, we will now be doing, you know, disinformation as the, as, as the main practice. Um, that, that was never a bill that was passed, right? So, so like there, yeah. there's must be some kind of internal decision making. Yeah, slowly and then all at once. Um, right. You know, th- right. This is, is this is the dawning of the aspect, the dawning of an aspect. It's mm. um, look. There are different approaches to to answering that question. I, I'm interested in ideas, and so I, I, you know, the the two sort of pillars of my. The, of the 13 ways of looking at disinformation, the do, two pillars of my essay on disinformation are on the one hand, the animating ideas, and, and on the other, the um, institutional actors. Um, and so if we take the ideas to start, there is something intrinsic to technocratic progressivism that sees uh, sees representative democracy or participatory democracy, for that matter, the, sees the, the public as a um, as material to be molded, not as the makers of politics, but as the subjects of politics. And you can find this in in uh, you know political writing. Um, of the from the early 20th century, you can find it in people like H.G. Wells. You can find it in the early Herbert Crowley. You can find it in uh, an attitude, a, a what I would I, an attitude that I would identify largely with secular rationalism. Though there are also Protestant political manifestations of it in America, th- though those become increasingly secularized over time. That believes there is an engineering solution to every problem um, and that believes that those solutions are not only best determined, but can only be determined by a sort of natural intellectual aristocracy whose job it is to preside over an increasingly complex society that needs to be managed in a a top-down manner by enlightened experts. And that is not new. Um, that the, those ideas are, to some extent, always present and in competition with other strains uh, in the liberal and democratic tradition in America. And by the way, they have they they have right wing manifestations as well. So it's not there is a right. right, right. We talked about Yarvin the last time you were here, right? Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah. Um, and there, are, and, and Yarvin's not even the only one. There are other kinds of sort of right wing technocracy, but but th- those ideas are very powerful. And 
I think that when you create a society with sufficient surplus that people are no longer worried about starving, even if, you know, if when you reach the end of history, as it were, it becomes easier and easier to convince people that um, it's in their best interest to have more and more fundamental decisions about their lives taken away from them so that they can focus on more important things like jerking off the internet pornography and, (laughs) um, you know, playing video games and getting involved in um, political debates on Twitter and, you know, fearsome ideological debates, LARPing on Twitter or, or Reddit or whatever, or they can go, you know, smoke fentanyl or, or whatever it just like it becomes the distraction it, it, becomes the goal the distraction the exhaustion the demoralization uh all of which sort of uh, are coupled with like a um a sort of a consumerist bounty that is present even in the midst of economic precarity and, and, you know, real, not just wage stagnation, but wage decline for large sectors of the American economy. Um, and, and so there's that aspect of it. And then the technologies to do this become so much more powerful. So the introduction of digital surveillance platforms that capture essentially the entire public excuse me, Facebook, right? The introduction of social spaces, digital social spaces that everybody is on creates a new dynamic, creates a new possibility for social engineering and social manipulation that simply didn't exist in the 1970s. Even if you, you know, you look back at the great society, Right? It was a wildly ambitious program of social engineering, but it still had to work through politics to some extent because there simply didn't exist the technological means at the time to cir- circumvent the politics of coalition building, to circumvent the politics of sort of on-the-ground institution building. You needed that. But, but social media... Uh, introduces the illusion, the possibility that you no longer need that, that you don't need to do that anymore. And that you can simply change people's perceptions by altering the architecture of the reality they're being presented. And that is enough to to keep them out of the ways that you can then do the important work of um, protecting your own interests as the people, as the experts. And um, so that's a, a gradual process that then goes into a rapidly accelerates with the introduction of these new, a, hitherto unimaginably powerful technologies of social engineering and social manipulation. Right. Yeah. I, I think like, I don't know. There's another. There, there's another reading of this that's sort of like that's sort of like political economy, right? That that even if even if only a small fraction of 
you know, like quote unquote experts and, you know, like some portion of like actual experts, you know, like I, I'm sure there's like, there are individual doctors who kind of like work on vaccines, for example, who don't want, you know, who, who maybe like disagree with parts of the public that are being censored, but in no way want their want their findings to be used as kind of ammunition to like further censor people. Right. It, it, there's some sense in which like the the kind of most totalitarian expert is is the one that kind of retains power and gains the most kind of state influence. Um, there's there's a kind of political economy sense where um and and here's the here's the the reason why that matters right if this is just a kind of like broad expert disposition um first of all i i don't think that that's the case but but second of all like if if that's the broad expert um you know if that's just the kind of spirit of the of the expert class then there really isn't that much we can do about it, right? Um, whereas if it's this kind of political thing where, you know, like whatever, you know, like the state, let, let's say, you know, like whatever agency says, you know, we, we want to find some kind of expert to back up our claims and to actually further uh, further centralize control. And they find, you know, they find the most totalitarian guy. It's like, oh, oh look, here is, this, here is this guy we happen to find who uh, justifies exactly all of our actions. Th- then you really start seeing kind of lever in which um, you, you kind of start seeing the lever that's being pulled, right? And, th- and then the solution there becomes something like, oh, you, you no longer get to cherry pick, you know, you, you no longer get to do these kind of arbitrary, you know, this, this laundering of people like, um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now, but the Hamilton 68 person, Clint like, yeah, um, yeah, this is something that happens with, with wokeness as well, right? This is something that's been talked about that they kind of launder these kind of fake experts with fake methods um, that interpret the data in the exact, you know, opposite way as any scientist would. Uh, and, and that this is, you know, this this gets the stamp of policy relevant, right? That That's, that's how that branch of academia works, where, yeah, you, you end up with this, you end up with this um, kind of you end up with a slice of you know so-called experts that are kind of completely misrepresentative of what you know of both reality and even of what research exists out there. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think yeah I, I don't think it's quite the case that it's just you know it's it, you know like all of the experts are uh, are kind of you know contributing to this thing. Uh, Right. There's a, so no, no, no. Of, of course yeah. not. But but it's listen. It's the important thing to understand is that within the system that we're we're currently living in, which is a one party system, effectively, expertise is defined by fealty to the party. So I'm not condemning expertise in a technical sense, nor am I certainly nor am I condemning the acquisition of specialized knowledge, which uh, I think is important and um, and incredibly useful. What I, I'm condemning is a social coalition, a, a political formation within the society in which we currently live, in which expertise is measured by fealty to the party system. Credentialing becomes increasingly a reflection of fealty to the party system. So the, those that's the expertocracy that's the technocracy 
that that I'm referring to here, the doctors, you will notice the, the whole point of the disinformation system and of information regulation writ large is to make it so that doctors, for instance, who fall afoul of the party, lose their expertise. Right. They're cast out. They're no longer experts. Right. I forget, uh, you know, a perfect example is Aaron Cariotti. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we could, I'm sure both name others. Um, so it's, it's not the case that, that there is something wrong with, uh, with being an expert because there is an intrinsic, uh, negative quality attached to that kind of acquisition of knowledge, um, I mean, maybe you could make an argument about that, but I'm, it's certainly not the argument I'm making. I'm making an argument about the function of expertise within the current political system. Now, on a deeper level, right. it, within a technocratic system, a technocratic party state like the one we have, you know, what is putatively classified as expertise and ideology become indistinguishable. They become the same thing. So this privileging of expert knowledge above political sovereignty, for instance, there, there is a sort of deeper philosophical condition there insofar as the belief, the ingrained belief is that the expert by virtue of being more expert, more right than the average citizen, therefore demands more of a share of the political system than the average system. So there is an intrinsic uh, quality. There, there is a, a uh, you know, the, the sort of managed bureaucratic society does privilege in political terms the expert over the average system. But that's not an argument against expertise per se. It's certainly not an argument against technical expertise. I mean, when I when young people ask me for advice, the thing I tell them, the thing I usually tell them is um, just get very good at something and right. don't worry so much about what it is initially. You know, really learn one thing as well as you possibly can. Um, so I'm talking about the political uses. Yeah, I do think there's this weird, yeah, the, the, there's this weird, you know, like there's the real meaning and there's the propaganda meaning, you know, like, like we were talking about this exactly um, with, you know, like social media, quote unquote experts, like who who is a social media expert? Is it, you know, like, is it some kind of software engineer? No, like they're, they're kind of like, you know, the very much the left is kind of turning against software engineers now, um, software as an industry. No, no, instead it's like, it, it's like this kind of NGO type person. Yeah, there, there's, this is a good pushback. Although I, I, although I do think it's kind of, uh, I, I dislike the, the, the rhetorical tactic. You know, I, I get what you mean. Like, I don't think we disagree too much with the, un, when it comes to the underlying point. I just think there needs to be like a, a different word than than like expert here, right? I think if a normal person hears the word expert, you know, they think of the normal meaning of the word expert, which is kind of something, which is the thing that we were talking about later with, which is just, you know, like pe people who have kind of like domain specific knowledge about something. Whereas, yeah, there, there's this kind of like political usage, which is basically just like regime loyalist. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. 
and um, probably useful for me to keep in mind, then I, I don't adhere to the kind of reactionary – I think there is a fad for a reactionary attacks on um, – expert knowledge as being somehow inherently corrupt, which I don't share at all and I don't want to participate in. So maybe my language is a little slavier. Yeah. But like in, in your defense, it is the kind of, it is the kind of, um, you know, the, the milieu that we're in, right? It, it is the kind of, not like that, not the kind of reactionary usage of it, but the kind of like mainstream media usage of it. Right, that that is that that is kind of everywhere. It is it is a significant portion of mindshare, even if it's not kind of like the default assumption that like if you're working in politics, you know, like like as we both are, like at least politics adjacent, then like that that is a lot of the usage, even if it's not that much of a usage in like you know normal life. Well, the the important thing that you're pointing out though is the need to separate what I would call real knowledge from Aristotle's knowledge, and. Yeah. You need a language that both defends but also differentiates that real knowledge, that that genuine domain-specific expertise from the unbelievable volume of Aristotle's knowledge. And one of the functions or, or one of the characteristics of the kind of society in which we live is that it generates – and this is, of course – the irony or, or the perversity of disinformation is that the the disinformation as it presents itself, right, is this uh, noble effort to safeguard the otherwise functioning democratic order from these intrusions of injurious and, and spurious and pernicious false knowledge. But of course, the truth is that the the mainstream establishment order produces unbelievable, unfathomable quantities of false information. And that's not only true in terms of the most lurid examples like Russiagate, like the invention of this deranged conspiracy that Donald Trump was a Russian agent, or in terms of the outright falsehoods promulgated about um, COVID and vaccines, you know, the 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 claims that the vaccines would stop transmission, which were you know then just yeah, which were not even based on the paper to begin with, it, or, it's, or, it's the, like, or yeah. the claims from pharmaceutical executives themselves and public testimony where they could never claim that because it would have exposed them to legal liability, so they themselves had to acknowledge this in public. But but there was a tremendous amount. Like those are the lurid cases, right? Those are the really hyper politicized cases. But the, if you're looking at like we're standing on top of a landfill, where does most of this garbage come from? Most of the garbage in the landfill is not these hyper politicized cases. Most of the garbage in the landfill is like what produces degrees in universities, which is a tremendous amount of – there's a tremendous amount of useless, fake, you know, contrived, fake expertise that is pumped out because in terms of political economy, it is useful in establishing one's place in a kind of economy of false knowledge, um, an administrative economy of false knowledge. So there is a unbelievable degree, like, you know, the classic example that always comes to mind for me is, you know, there have been multiple um, 
there are there are studies in multiple fields that show that essentially the, the human palate has very fixed limitations. So you can see in terms of um, sommeliers, for instance, that you know there's a range of things that even the most sophisticated human taster is able a, a quite circumscribed range of tastes available. Um, even to a sophisticated taster in terms of what they can ascertain in wine. But of course, the variety, and this is true not only in terms of, not only with wine, but across, you know, you know, mushroom tasting, for instance, as well. But the variety of wines available in the marketplace, of course, dramatically exceed the, uh, the tastes available to experts, let alone average consumers. And so, there is the invention of this sort of false, you know, this this fake currency of taste um, that people have these palates that can pick up on notes of peach, earthy, you know, zinc, uh, whatever. I mean, I think you get where I'm going with the example, and and maybe it's not the best one, but there's the creation of of a kind of false vocabulary that then justifies the or legitimates the the consumer product and the same is true um where the consumer product is um uh you know the, the consumer product is american students the consumer product is subjects of therapeutic interventions by the administrative state you know i would argue right. that the the harm reduction industry operates on tremendous stores of of false knowledge you know things that are either evidently disproved or that are highly debatable become become the you know the the education industry at large works as my my wife was a public high school teacher she had to go through um one of these education mills in order to become a public high school teacher in New York, where she was subjected to the most ridiculous sort of educational dogma that added up to nothing, that contributed nothing to her ability to teach. This is, these are forms of false knowledge that in a real sense, however, constitute the expertise in those fields. So on the one hand, I am sympathetic to what you're saying, and I agree with you that we have to be able to differentiate between the importance of real technical subject domain expertise and and this kind of politically aligned false expertise. On the other hand, the the sort of, if you're looking at it in raw terms, like what, what outweighs what, there seems to be a lot more fake expertise it seems to be more uh prevalent than the real thing right yeah like yeah at the end of the day this has to be you know you have to drill down on a case-by-case basis i agree with you there um right like what what are your thoughts on the kind of right-wing version of this i know we mentioned it earlier uh, like, like the right-wing technocracy you know like the singapore stands i'm friends with a lot of you know these similar circles um wh- where i think that the, the understanding is kind of like you know th- this is kind of like the understanding of like burnham right it, it, is that you know we're gonna ru- be ruled by an elite either way why not why not just let it be an elite that you agree with right um yeah, but Burnham is not a technocrat. Uh, very much 
Yeah, that's that. fair. That's fair. You know, Bur- Burnham is talking about power as the prime mover, not expertise. And um, yeah. and power is more a reflection of will than it is of specialized knowledge. In I think both that's generally true, and it's certainly in terms of what Burnham means. What do I think of like the Singapore types? I mean, I would certainly prefer competent, um, unaccountable bureaucrats to flagrantly incompetent, unaccountable bureaucrats. But um, <laughs> but I. I don't, uh, you know, it doesn't appeal to me necessarily. And um, I think that some of the defenses of the Singapore model are, um, you know, some of them are misguided insofar as it seems to me to have very little relevance to America, for instance. So, whatever you think of Singapore and it might work very well for Singapore. I don't know what it has to do with a, a country as vast and, um, and diverse and localized and, and federalized as America. So I'm not sure what, what you can take from that um, unless the plan is to create independent city states inside of America. But if we're, if the idea is still to create a more perfect union and to, to keep the union together, I'm not sure how much really can be drawn from the case of Singapore and applied to America. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if you know this, but there actually are, you know, there, there are people who are gunning for the independent American city state, but um, yeah, I, I do think like, Right. Uh, I, I do think that this is where I'm uh, I'm optimistic, you know, on machine learning is that it, it creates this kind of re it, it reforms this kind of like guided intermediation. Right. There, there, there's like a there's like a dystopian version of this. Right. So maybe I should explain this to the audience a bit. So like the. A lot of the machine learning uh, algorithms, particularly language models, stuff like ChatGPT that are particularly in the news now, um, they go through kind of two stages or, or like roughly two stages, like two, two like phases of training, let's say. Um, one is initial where you basically where it basically learns English, right? And it learns kind of like the structure of sentences and essays and so on um, incompletely, of course, but like. Um, and this is just, uh, this is, you know, it's, 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 uh, quote unquote unsupervised. It's basically, you just take, you just take tons of data, uh, from basically from the internet, from across the wide range of the internet. And that, that is what forms the kind of base understanding of structure. And then there's, um, a much smaller phase of basically customization or kind of one of the techniques that's primarily used for this is called reinforcement learning from human feedback, RLHF, uh, which is essentially these kind of, these kind of like question answer phrases that are kind of very consciously constructed by like employees of the company, which are like, okay, if you get an answer of this type, then you should give an answer of this type. And it's basically a kind of ideological or stylistic restructuring. And uh, an interesting dynamic with these two, with this like two two phase thing, is that the latter step is actually just enormously cheap. So there are experiments by people like David Rosato. Um, there are also experiments using the the online um, 
version of Facebook's model that was leaked, uh, where you can essentially recalibrate um, whatever whatever your AI is to a specific kind of ideology or a specific set of assumptions or a specific worldview. Now, now I definitely see like a dystopian version of this where, you know, like only one, only one version of the AI is mandated and um, kind of adopted across the entire state. But there's another version, there's like an optimistic version of this where, um, where where the where the political economy of basically like intermediation means that like oh you all you have to intermediate all information through say a mainstream press outlet or say through uh, a social media outlet as opposed to this more this more like genuinely local thing you know maybe it's not local as in you know it's decided upon by your community but it's local as uh, as in it's decided in by you know your friends online um, th- this general kind of like you know, the, the Doomer version, you know, like the, the the Jonathan Haidt version, we'll call it like fragmentation. But I view, I, I view this kind of fragmentation, this kind of like, uh, int- this kind of like, um, I, I have a, I have a line like this in an upcoming article. Um, you know, you, you can look at like, for the people, by the people, of the people, as like, you know, Curtis Jarvin has this line where he says like, by the people, and uh, of the people are the same thing, but really they're not, right? One is about kind of um, reflecting people's values, but another is about like intermediation. And I really see like, I see that this is like the positive framing of it. I really see like the return of intermediation as a kind of localized thing um, to be actually a very important step change when it comes to AI. Now, Mm. I I know you've also laid out, um, I read your Senate testimony, absolutely brilliant. I know you kind of laid out the the dystopian version better than I ever could, but um, yeah. First of all, yeah. First of all, what do you think of this kind of more optimistic version? And uh, you know, if you have disagreements, uh, no, I think wrong. it's great. You know, this is you know, I like talking with you, Brian, because um, I am looking for uh, hope. I want to be given hope, and I I don't want to be deluded. You know, I don't want unreasonable hope, but I'm not a I'm not a cynic or a doomer or a fatalist, and <laughs> many um, such cases out there. Yeah, but I I don't wouldn't advise it to anybody. I think it's um, I wouldn't advise it to anybody. Period. But I I sure as hell wouldn't advise it to anybody with children. You know, it's um, right. You infect your children with that. It's actually kind of reprehensible. So um, I, I'm looking for. For hope, and I, I've heard sort of, you know, you articulated it very well, but I've heard some of this from other people as well, and I, I think that that's good. I mean, I, if we can achieve real fragmentation and local intermediation, great. Let, let's try and get to it. And um, I, I simply lack the technical understanding it, in some cases to understand. Um, sort of how this might work practically. I mean, there are some use cases I can see. There are others where I have a harder time conceptualizing how the local intermediation wouldn't simply be overrun or subsumed by the centralized authority. But insofar as uh, these technologies can drive decentralization 
and fragmentation. I think that that's a good thing. And I also, you know, I don't, um, I don't hold out any hope, nor do I have any interest in pursuing, uh, you know, a, a sort of uh, Butlerian jihad against <laughs> the machines. So I think we need to, we need to, you know, the only way out is through, right? So we need yeah. to figure out how to make it work. And I am, I'm looking for things to be hopeful about. Yeah, I think like my audience should definitely have this impression. I, I certainly have this uh, impression, or not just an impression, but like an understanding of you as a kind of like analyst of social movements, right? And, and I do think, I do think what a lot of this space lacks, um, you know, like like John Asconis is the only other person I think who's who's really talking about this. Um, really, like the effect of. I think he he originally um, framed this through the internet, but I think it naturally extends to machine learning. Um, this kind of like neo McLuhanism, right? This um, his his framing of this right is that the internet, you know, the 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 internet just shifts how people see um, how people conceptualize of information right it breaks the kind of information monopoly but not only that it reverts to these kind of older um older kind of social understandings of political coalitions of kind of how to come to agreements uh and really i think like what the so like to, to pose this as a better question to to like kind of maybe simplify down some of the some of the technical understanding and really look at it as a kind of question of you know mass psychology you end up with, um, I, I think you end up with two tribes, right? You you end up with you know, you end up with the Protestants and the Catholics, just as it always has been. Um, you end up with, I think, people like Jonathan Haidt, um, someone who actually like gets still like a shocking amount of reception among kind of similar circles that we share. In in my view, for like completely the the wrong reason who says like, okay, if, if there's this kind of fractionalization, if people are kind of being intermediated through their own AIs, this is actually terrible. You know, this is polarization. This is, you know, th this is echo chambers. Uh, and, and on the other hand, you get someone like Bology um, who, who says, you know, like the, the only people who complain about echo chambers is, is the people who complain that there's more than one, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So like he, the, the question is, um, g given everything you've seen, given your understanding of how, you know, how, how really only one of these camps is willing to use state power, what do you think the, what do you think the fight over AI will look like, right? Well, what do you think, you know, what will we see, will we see a kind of escalation of the same kind of tactics of the disinformation era? Will, will we see a version where they just don't give up or where they just give up, where they're not, no longer able to control it? Will we see kind of more translation into the kind of physical sphere um, where there's more of a crackdown on kind of practical actions instead of on, on kind of information as it is right now? Like, like what's the, what's the trajectory that we're going to, uh, see here. Uh, so on the state side, it'll be the the a combination of the latter two. So it'll be both a continuation of counter disinformation tactics, meaning the um, creation of false emergencies to justify uh, state 
monopolistic control over the technology in the name of public safety and national security, combined with an increasing degree of interventions into the real world, which will be you know, ostensibly necessitated by the fact that AIs will be um, uh, integrated into, you know, physical uh, machinery and infrastructure. Um, so there's, I, I don't think any question that that's, um, those two strategies will be pursued by the the state and the ruling party and its extended apparatus in the United States. The real question then is, what will the pro-fragmentation people do to not make their case, but to, you know, because I think that their case is already pretty well made. Yeah. Um, so, but it obviously doesn't go far enough. And I know that, you know, somebody like Balaji is savvy enough to understand that, you know, to, to come back to Burnham for a second, you know, Burnham's argument was the only thing that power understands is power. Right. right and exactly. so what will be the power adva- you know how will the the pro decentralization advocates manifest their power such that it is not only a positive good but that it also neutralizes the power of their opponents and i could see different ways that that could work, different scenarios. One of them is sort of um, setting up uh, local uh, economic systems that make it possible to carry out certain kinds of financial transactions without the need for outside centralized authorities that simply um, de facto exclude them. And I, I could see it working in, uh, in terms of potentially other sort of like local use cases that just instantiate themselves and then essentially dare the, the central state authorities to come do something about it. You know, that, that, uh, that you know, it's like the Uber model, right? Like, right, right. Uber just took over, um, in flagrant violation of local law in a number of places, and like that didn't work out very well. The Uber, but the idea was like, we'll just take over, we'll we will swallow up so much market share that we become the dominant force, and then we'll deal with the lawsuits as they come and the state challenges as they come, and, and um. So maybe not quite like Uber. Obviously, it didn't work out for Uber, but something along those lines. I mean, I think they're still doing pretty well. You know, they're they're still doing decently. Um, Fair point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that like an interesting dynamic here is the kind of shifting political coalitions, right? So, so, so like, I, I remember there was this exchange I had with, um, or like this public exchange I had with Glenn Greenwald. And Matt Iglesias, where like Matt Iglesias is kind of complaining, like, like, why did why did Glenn Greenwald go from being like very left wing to like very right wing? And there was never like a like a stage in between. And I was like, 
you know, like, this is actually an interesting, like, like this is the wrong framing, but it's actually an interesting question, right? Why, why did kind of, like, rebelling against the uh, the intelligence agencies go from being le- very left-wing, or, like, coded very left-wing, at least, to, to being coded very right-wing, like, right, like, very extremely quickly? And, like, a, a similarly related question is kind of, like, yeah, the the evolution of kind of Jonathan Haidt, you know, from this kind of like intellectual dark web kind of person. Although there are some critiques, like Nathan Hoffness has this critique that his organization really never protected academic freedom or even worsened academic freedom. Uh, but like at least at least kind of like rhetorically being kind of like on the intellectual dark web and being kind of like pro free speech, classical liberal, to, to really advocating now for the, these like totalitarian measures. It, it's, it's, it's like very, it's very interesting, the, the kind of gravitational pull um, this issue asserts on people. And yeah, 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 yeah. like, well, sorry, go on, go on. Well, you know, um, conflict and disorder heighten, uh, heighten certain positions and heighten certain contradictions that are smoothed over in more placid times. And um, the real, the really, the example that stands out to me is not height, but it's Sam Harris, who, you know, I had always had problems with, and I had always, um, the, the, the Harris style uh, rationalist atheism, I, I had always found to be quite shallow and facile, but the, the, his enthusiasm for, um, not simply anti-democratic, but, you know, anti-truth measures in the name of the political order it ought to be illustrative to people who had ever taken his claims about being a disinterested or dispassionate truth seeker seriously. So, you know, quickly to recap what I'm talking about, Harris came out and justified the really extraordinary degree of state-directed deception uh, around the Hunter Biden laptops on the grounds that anything was justified in order to keep Trump out of office. And uh, specifically what Harris said in an interview is that, you know, he didn't care if there was evidence on the laptops of like children murdered and buried in a basement, that that would be justified. Now, it's one thing for a sort of explicit, avowed partisan to say that. But again, Harris is somebody who made his career supposedly demolishing the primitive myths of superstitious religious people and defending truth as a principle, defending the the absolute sanctity of truth. And to see how quickly this great truth defender um, makes truth expedient and, and, and sacrifices it to the higher good of protecting the political order he favors um, wasn't a great surprise to me, frankly, because I never took Harris's ideas that seriously, but I, I hope will be something of a wake-up call to those who did. And, you know, the – the uh, well, I guess what I would say, the truth is that for all of us, our most deeply held convictions are in some, in some sense an expression of our relationship to power 
And we ought to at least try to be honest with ourselves about that. And it doesn't mean that none of our convictions are authentic. It doesn't mean that um, we don't truly hold any beliefs that are not self-interested, but we need to try and put ourselves in a position where we can test the extent to which certain ideas that we hold uh, reflect our own interests or reflect our, our relationship to power. Um, and uh, and I, I think that interesting times, to borrow, you know, the old Chinese phrase are, are put us in a position to test that out, sort of put that into practice in a way. And um, somebody like Matt Iglesias is like very good at sort of complaining about um, the things that more interesting and original thinkers do, but um, is, you know, is less good, I think, at, at um, exploring or, or penetrating to the, the fundamentals, um, not the, the social constructions around a given position, but the fundamentals of a position. So why did Greenwald go from, from this political polarity to that polarity is ultimately, you know, I think less interesting than what is it that he is critiquing in terms of the way it functions in the society. Like the positioning of Greenwald becomes the story in part as a way of distracting from the real story which is what is the role of the intelligence agencies? Right, right, yeah, yeah. But like, right to, to return to Sam Harris, like, what is the actual? You know, I, the, the thing I'm trying to do here is kind of draw a, uh, a, a causal link, or you can you can kind of reject my framing if you think it's wrong. But I think there's some kind of causal link between kind of like the underlying technology or the kind of environment of the internet to, you know, Sam Harris's political orientation, right? I do think there was a shift there. And, and I do think that that was kind of downstream of technology, you know, downstream of um, downstream of the medium. Uh, although, so, so like, first of all, do you agree with that? And if so, like, what do you think that that causal link actually was? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And the causal link is that the digital technology, but social media in particular, simply overwhelmed and radically and rapidly destabilized established hierarchies, including those, including sort of epistemological hierarchies that had ordered um, what we understood and had ordered the formation of consensus truths. And it did so in ways that were amoral. You know, so this is not an argument in favor of that process. It's a description of that process. And um, you can witness this in a thousand different ways. The proliferation of conspiracy thinking is one classic example online, that is, and on message boards. But another is, you know, something like, um, you know, the, the sort of crowdsourcing of Wikipedia, which is itself fraught and not necessarily a, a good a good thing or a purely good thing. But the the point that you made earlier and that Ascanis and people like um, 
James Poulos have made about the way in which the digital order resurrects a more medieval uh, world order speaks to the overwhelming and incontestable power of information and the fact that rather than this sort of top-down information model of the 20th century in which information technologies, um, which were then, you know, in their more nascent form could be controlled in a more or less top-down fashion and communications technologies in particular empowered the expert class. The digital technologies disempower the expert class. They disempower elites and they empower nobody in particular, you know, except, right, for, right. The people, the, except for the coders and the people who, who control the server stacks and the fiber optic cables, as it were. Um, but they, they are they are radically disempowering to the 20th century technocrats. And there are two, two ways to understand what liberalism and an open society are about. And in fact, these two ways are cataloged in a, a brilliant, short, brilliant book by the British philosopher John Gray called The Two Faces of Liberalism. And for his two faces, he takes J.S. Mill on the one hand and Tom Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes on the other. Uh, two seminal classical thinkers of liberal political theory. And what he counterposes is the Millsian worldview. Everybody thinks of Mills as a, a defender of free speech, which of course he was. But in the Millsian worldview, the importance of free speech was that it allowed for a sort of laboratory of thinking within which eventually the greater, truer idea would win out and elevate itself, therefore leading to a sort of inexorable progress toward the unitary truth. So in other words, there was an instrumentality to free speech in the Millsian worldview, because ultimately there was one truth. And the importance of hmm. debate and free speech was that the one truth would win out. That's the Millsian worldview. The, the Hobbesian worldview is a worldview of modus vivendi. That is, it's a worldview in which there are competing irreconcilable truths. There is not a truth that will win out. There are competing truths in the sense that there are competing absolutes. There are competing ends. There are differences. One, one society values loyalty uh, as the greater human good, and another society values freedom. And loyalty and freedom can obviously be not only in tension, but in direct conflict. Freedom would say that if you are deeply unhappy in your marriage, you should be able to leave. Um, you know, and even if that means uh, devastating consequences for your loved ones, you know, and the effects of divorce on your children. Loyalty would say that your individual freedom you, to, to make that choice is less important than your, your loyalty to your spouse, to your family, etc. And I, I'm not here to adjudicate between those. I'm just saying that one society might favor one of those values, another society would favor another. And the point of liberalism is that it provi provides a technology for mediating between these conflict conflicts of absolute ends, 
right? right. And, uh, and that's what liberalism is. Liberalism is not a inexorable march of progress towards the, the one unitary truth. It is a system that facilitates in perpetuity um, the, this conflict between ends. And that has its own problems. The Hobbesian worldview has its own problems, right? It's sort of by its nature doesn't necessarily nurture deeply rooted belief because it makes it, it sort of um, it doesn't allow one thing to flourish over another necessarily. Um, so I, I'm not saying the Hobbesian worldview is better than the Millsian worldview, but you can see these two different aspects of the liberal character, what we think of as liberalism, had coexisted for a, a certain period of time. And now these two forms of liberalism have themselves become irreconcilable. Somebody like Harris is a Millsian and he believed and he believes that there's a certain group of people in possession of the truth. And the most important thing is that those that, that group of people be kept in possession of the truth. And that that is more important than the political sovereignty of individuals. It's more important than the constitution. It's more important than the pursuit of truth as a completely unimpeded exercise, right? And so for somebody like Harris, the internet comes along, disrupts these establishments. You know, Harris is a perfect stand-in in this case for a whole class of individuals, CIA officers, journalists, you know, academics, uh, you know, presidential candidates. It's like there's, this is a whole class we're describing who sees the world in these terms. For them, freedom, true freedom is about clearing away the rabble of the deplorables and, and the, the, the plebes so that the experts can administer society properly. That's how we achieve true freedom. Um, and that's what real democracy, you know, because of course they, they call themselves defenders of democracy and that's how they understand democracy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, and so that's, that's the change. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think it is absolutely downstream of this technological change. And I think the entire counter disinformation war is an attempt to put the genie back in the bottle. And in fact, we're only at the very beginning to, to, come full circle because I know we have to wrap up soon. Like this is all downstream of technology and it's all an attempt to put the genie back in the bottle. And we are only at the very beginning of what are going to be an ever more profound series of transformations. Like uh, this, this printing press, uh, you know, the equivalent of the Gutenberg galaxy, we're at the very beginning of it. And if we, if we see the reaction so far as indicative of how the powers that be view this revolution, which challenges them, we can have some sense of what the next, say, 10 or, or 20 years has in store for us. Right. That, that's a great place to end it. And I do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. And yeah, that was extraordinary. I mean, to, to end on a hopeful note, I do think I'm excited. I'm excited for the return of the political. I think the old answers, a lot of them were wrong. And, uh, you know, I really want to see them relitigated. And I think, you know, we're, we are going to see it. We're, we are going to see it happen. 
Um, but yeah, thanks again for coming on, Jacob. Thank you, and um, you know I'm excited as well. Amen, Salah. That was my conversation with Jacob Siegel. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, once again, like I asked at the beginning, please check out his article, A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century. It should be the first article linked in the description. And if you'd like to help the show, the number one thing you can do is let a friend know, either in person or online. That's the best way to grow the podcast. And if you'd still like to help us out, then of course you can subscribe if you want another episode every week. You can give us a like. You can give us five-star reviews on any podcast app. And you can also subscribe to my Substack, where I also offer some amount of paid articles and Q&As. And I hope you enjoyed the episode, and you'll have another great episode next Monday. See you then.